from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind podcast, where we discuss the future of diagnostic laboratory testing. I'm Dr. Brian Jackson. Hello, today is Monday, April 27th, 2020. Our guest on LabMind today is Pam Banning. Pam has over 30 years' experience in healthcare data systems with a particular focus on using standardized terminologies to achieve something called semantic interoperability, and we'll have to talk a little bit about what that is. Pam worked here at AUP a number of years ago, back in the 1990s, with the IT Clinical Systems Group, but currently works for 3M Health Information Systems as a healthcare data analyst in their terminology consulting services group. Pam, welcome to the LabMind podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. Pam, I just introduced you as an expert in semantic interoperability, which is a bit of a mouthful and a term probably not terribly familiar to a lot of the listeners. So I'm curious, when you meet someone new, say at a conference, and they ask you what you do for a living, do you say that you do semantic interoperability, or how do you explain what your job is? I explain that I'm applying standardized terminologies to clinical data as a way of getting the computers the ability to do what they do best, which is extremely large, lengthy, and redundant computational analysis. I'm a bit of a catalyst in getting clinical data tagged with a terminology, and I feel like I'm a steward in two different senses. One, from the source data, which would be any healthcare provider, that we take extreme care with the data, that as we're doing this process, there's no loss in meaning, context, or granularity of that data. And secondly, with particular to LOINC, I'm currently serving as the Lab LOINC Committee co-chair, and I'm really trying to be a, a good steward in raising that specific terminology to an international standard that it was always envisioned to become. So we probably need to get into a couple of use cases to illustrate how this applies, because it still feels fairly abstract to people that don't have health IT backgrounds. One use case that I think uh, might be interesting to talk about because we're in the middle of this global COVID-19 pandemic right now is public health. Could you explain a little bit how public health agencies use standardized terminologies or take advantage of standardized terminologies in some of the work that they do? Certainly. So everyone is probably very well aware that there are required elements that need to be reported on certain infectious diseases to their public health department. Long ago, we dreamed that this didn't have to be a faxed report, that this could be something that the computers were able to transmit all by themselves. And so things like positive Lyme's disease or syphilis, sexually transmitted diseases, but now especially COVID, I think both positives and negatives on COVID are going in and being studied. The problem is that it starts with every laboratory, every hospital system set up their compendium or their test catalog in their own unique way and they're using a mnemonic or a short abbreviation of each assay for ordering, and they have a certain display name, which makes perfect sense inside the four walls of that institution on what's being reported. But once you're sitting at a repository and you're having data feeds from 60 or 100 different systems, you don't want to become clouded on what is really being reported by this serology or by this lab result. So the application of LOINC and SNOMED terms has been in process 20 years or more, and LOINC will be describing what type of assay was performed and what was the specimen to a very superficial level and what does the result format look like. But then also SNOMED is describing in very discrete elements what was the actual source, what was the actual specimen, 
And no matter how I type the word positive or plus signs, there's a SNOMED numeric string that can come across that lets the computers know this is a positive value. In particular, with the COVID scenario, I can tell you what was going on in January in the terminology world and maybe walk you through a couple of steps if you think that would be helpful. Yeah, sure. In January 23rd and 24th, myself and many colleagues were gathered together down in Arizona for a CLSI work group face-to-face meeting. And we're tasked with writing a report on interoperability. And I have with me a CDC member and a representative from the Association of Public Health, a SNOMED clinical terminologist. I have someone from College of American Pathologists. I have someone from American Association of Clinical Chemistry. And we're all having a good time because we all understand each other and know our place in this setup of what happens for interoperability. But the sidebars in the room were fabulous because between every break, everyone was calling back to their home station, finding out what's the latest development on what's going on with the Wuhan virus. So within a day of the World Health Organization declaring this an emergency of public concern, Lincoln SNOMED responded with terms in their clinical vocabularies. So you're talking about COVID-19 testing data coming in from thousands of different laboratories to different public health departments, right? If I'm understanding this right, every laboratory might spell the name of the test a little bit differently. One might call it a COVID-19 test. Someone else might call it a SARS-CoV-2 PCR. So the computer needs to be able to know that those two are the same test, but that it's a totally different test from the COVID space IgG test, which really is completely different and has a, a completely different meaning. If you had to have the poor public health department staff, who are pretty spread thin right now as it is, manually looking at every single report every single result coming in from a patient to manually determine what exactly is that test and which column to store this in and which data to put together and which data to keep separate, that would be unmanageable. Is that a way of explaining this? It certainly is. The most common display I'm seeing and have been seeing through February and March is COVID or COVID-19. Then after the Abbott ID now came out, COVID-19 rapid. The problem with that is rapid is usually antigen detection or antibody detection. It never has been used to describe a PCR. Right. But there are fast PCRs that are getting called rapid. So so just looking at the human-friendly name on its surface may or may not give you the right answers to what test this is. And so we want every laboratory to be reporting these with a LOINC code to specify this precisely, correct? Correct. Let's actually dive into LOINC a little bit. For any listeners who haven't heard the term before, it can feel a little bit funny to the ear. I know LOINC people like to joke about the way that the name sounds. But when we go back in history a little bit, explain what does LOINC stand for or where did it come from and a little bit about the history over time about how it's been adopted and and used in the lab community as well as the health IT community. started back in around 1994, 95. In fact, it just celebrated its 25th anniversary. started back in Indiana, in Indianapolis at Reagan Streep Institute, which has actually very many departments within it, biomedical informatics aging, behavioral sciences, a lot of studies. But Dr. Clem McDonald worked uh, within that Indiana Health Exchange and within the HL7 work group, uh, Health Level 7, they were seeing that they needed to have some sort of way of identifying different lab tests and what was really being reported. And so coming out of 
Indianapolis, they brought together a public partnership meeting, and ARUP was there at the beginning. Labs that don't exist anymore at the Corning MetPath was there. Mayo was there, as in addition to a couple of hospitals around the Indianapolis area. And we just started talking about how we can successfully achieve that identification specifically. And so it ended up being six different axes. I can look at any lab test, and this becomes the method that I teach people when they're trying to learn how to do this mapping, is there's just six axes that you look at every lab test from. You find the answer for each one of those, and then there's a numeric string that the database will understand. You don't have to remember these codes, but the database will understand what you're talking about. So the six analytes, uh, six properties are the analyte. Is it a hormone, a protein, an antibody? an antigen, you know, what is being tested. So in this case, maybe uh, COVID-19 nucleic acid would be an analyte, right? Yes. SARS-CoV-2 antibody IgG, IgM. Oh, right, because COVID is the name of the disease. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. So that's a good point. So it will be specific. In LOINC, you won't find COVID. I don't know. You might find it in the synonyms, but it won't be in the formal name. Uh, It'll be named by the actual virus. The second attribute is property. And That is an identification of what type of result is coming to me. In numeric terms, you know, you rely very heavily on units of measure. So in general chemistry, 120. Well, 120 what? Milligrams per deciliter? Millimoles per liter? Those don't equate 120. And we want the computers to be able to bring together like terms. So property will be able to say, this is a numeric value measured in molar concentration. This is a numeric value based in metric concentration or this is an interpretation, so on and so forth. To bring it back to COVID, our laboratory currently reports out the PCR test as either positive or negative. Which is the presence threshold property. Right. Even though the instrument generates a number as to how much signal level related to how much virus is there, but it's reported out as positive or negative. So that's a qualitative test. For the antibody test, we actually have two assays running. One is a qualitative and the other is a semi-quantitative. So I guess those would differ on that second LOINC axis. The system that it's being tested on, in some instances, LOINC will go down very specific to nasopharyngeal versus sputum. But at the moment, they're pretty much sitting at respiratory system. So there's not a lot of granulation in there, but messaging of final results will usually include an additional result field that's actually just called specimen, and they'll have typed in nasopharynx. Even though Loink will just say, this is a respiratory system, SARS-CoV-2, that additional piece of information from the lab will say it's the pharynx or oropharynx or sputum. Or in the case of the antibody test, that's blood or serum? And of everything that you spoke of, there are currently long terms. There's more than 40 now. I didn't check this morning, but I checked on Friday, and there were about 52 altogether, including some supporting information as far as, like, casework. So, like, travel, date of known exposure, those sorts of things are in there. But we can either have that analyte being the nucleic acid or the specific target, such as the RDRP, or that open reading frame 1AB region. That's been kind of a, an education experience for me because I was used to thinking that there would just be a target of one particular gene rather than a region. But there's link terms for all of those. And then, as we said, for antibodies, there's the IgA, IgM, and IgGs. And then method is also another one of the attributes that we look at, and either immunoassay or a rapid immunoassay. There's two different links.
So they're trying to get that all on that baseline framework. It's one of those things that you add it once into the compendium, and then every time that assay is used on a patient, the data gets generated and it has that semantic tag that allows it to go on. It's entirely invisible to the clinicians, to the lab techs. It doesn't take up any place on your worksheet or on your patient report. It's all meant for the electronic streaming of that value. So Loeing's been around for, you said, 25 years. What's your sense of how widely adopted it is? You know, of all the lab data produced in the United States every day, do you have any sense of what proportion of those lab results have a Loink code tagged to them? Any ideas? This has been my life mission. <laughs> I thought it was much higher than what I'm finding it actually is. Last fall, I was on a panel with the FDA, the Medical Device Innovation Collaboration, and there was a panelist on there with me talking about this interoperability and the coverage, and he's actually seen, so he's downstream from where I'm working, he's seen all of this data compilation come in, and he estimated it's sitting at about 30%, which I found it appalling. Yeah. I'd like to think that it is closer. If we're only at 30%, it sort of raises the question, what does it take for a laboratory to get their laboratory tests all tagged to uh, LOINC codes? Is this something you need an on-site LOINC expert at every single laboratory to do this? Anybody who's been trained in an ancillary healthcare position has the framework of their mind to, to solve that puzzle. I think the largest barrier has been getting the stakeholders, the organization, to make it a priority. And where it's not part of a use case of reimbursement, it doesn't affect the bottom line money-wise, it's been my experience why they haven't started it as yet. We can go to these informatics conferences and we can hear from people on pathology informatics and you know, different aspects of it that's still in interoperability, but maybe not tied to LOINC. And I'm just so enthused about what's going on, what the speaker just spoke of. And I'll go up to them and I'll ask them, you know, how is LOINC going at your facility? And most of the time I get, oh, I have no idea. I don't even think we use it. That's not part of what we do. But, you know, which, you know, <laughs> deflates my ego walking away. But so I don't think everyone has applied just because they might be very well known for one aspect of interoperability. I don't think that they have taken on all of the, the parts of it. So it sounds like there's opportunity to improve here, but we're not starting from zero. I mean, you did point out that there's still a large portion of lab data that is link coded. So the, the glass is at least 30% full. Do you have a sense of which parts of the lab community have had more success on this? I think the reference labs have had a better success because the bigger part of operations is the laboratory as yeah. to a hospital setting. So more, more resources, that, that makes sense. Well, let's contrast this to areas of coding where you see 100%. And, and you just mentioned this a few minutes ago, which is basically any coding that's tied to reimbursement, right? So CPT, obviously, ICD coding of diagnoses. If the insurance company requires it, then the health system is going to make it happen. They just have that impact. As an end result of all of this, it seems that we've got lots of analyzable healthcare data in big data sets in terms of ICD and CPT codes, because those are required for billing. But those codes were really not designed for clinical analysis or clinical purposes. They're really just designed at the level of granularity to allow you to do some sort of payment function. So they're really very poorly designed for 
asking clinical questions of your database or, or getting clinical knowledge out. And the systems like Loink that were really designed from a clinical perspective haven't been administratively required, even though they're potentially much more useful. Is that a fair way of, of describing the landscape? Yes. Absolutely. As a healthcare system, if we want our computers to get smarter, if you will, if we want to be able to do more decision support, better learning health systems, ability to analyze data for quality purposes and other clinically related purposes beyond simply billing, we're going to need to figure out how to do things like LOINC coding and SNOMED and these other clinically oriented terminologies. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Let's see if we can come up with another use case that listeners might be able to relate to. And I'd like to keep tying this to the COVID pandemic, since that's obviously consuming most of our brains these days. But one of the big goals in this COVID era that everyone is paying attention to is creating a vaccine. And the ones that appear to have some initial safety are going to end up in larger scale effectiveness trials. But the big question that everyone is asking, the big reason for caution with the vaccine is side effects. We know that vaccines need to be safe if we're going to give them to the general public. And so FDA and other folks involved in this are going to need to pay a lot of attention to adverse effects. Is this a use case for semantic interoperability in any way? I believe so, because the laboratory values, the pharmacy medication lists, the diagnoses, the problem lists, all of this is being documented locally in the electronic health record. But there are hundreds of thousands of those around the country, right? Yes. And then that feeds on into the data pools. Secondary use of data is very large in clinical research. And each piece of information, blood pressure, nausea, things that can be side effects, as well as things that could show marked improvement because of the treatment, are all collected as real-world data. And sometimes you see the acronym RWD. And millions, maybe billions of pieces of information are all being collated into massive repositories that have that, while they're de-identified for security and privacy, they've got the clinical information all tied together and still stored so you know the medication list that that patient value was on. And when you're looking specifically for one vaccine and how that use is, that's tagged in the data, and then you can pull that subpopulation of data out to become real-world evidence of the effectiveness or to disprove the the effectiveness of that particular vaccine. So real-world data is secondary use of all clinical data that's generated, and evidence then brings it to the forefront for one particular scenario or use case. So to summarize this, if we had a use case such as asking the question, are there any particular physiologic abnormalities or side effects that would be in the recorded electronic medical record for patients who'd received a particular vaccine versus patients who hadn't, then ideally every single category of clinical information in the electronic health record needs to be coded in a highly standardized way if you're going to compile and analyze all of that. Right, and there are standards for each of the domains, such as RxNorm for pharmacy, and SNOMED is used quite extensively in problem lists and in documenting treatment plans, as well as SNOMED is used quite extensively in laboratory results that are not numeric so where there are words that are coming out. It could be a genus species of an organism. There's a SNOMED code for that. Mm -hmm. It could be a qualifier of this was an indeterminate test or this was a positive test. There's a SNOMED code for that. 
And then the specimens and the sources, which are very important to find out, you know, where in the body was this test measured, are also SNOMED coded. So there are a lot of different terminology systems out there that address all the different types of clinical information. And sounds like we've got some progress to be made on most of those fronts in order to be able to do the kind of analysis that we really envision. So let me ask you a closing question. You've been in this game for a number of years now. You've been working on helping healthcare systems get their data better encoded. What makes you feel the most optimistic in the year 2020 with regard to semantic interoperability and improving the usability of healthcare data? What are you feeling optimistic about right now? One interesting project at the national level that's just now starting to take place, they just have barely started getting messages through, is their National Institutes of Health and John Hopkins University with the National COVID Cohort Collaborative. And they are bringing in 60 data streams. I don't know if they've even identified all 60 data streams yet, but they're allowed to use one of four data models, which we had talked about kind of may handle data a little bit differently here and there. And then this is going to include laboratory, pharmacy, and diagnoses. And it all has to do with the COVID-related schemes. There's going to be data ingestion and harmonization. There's going to be data quality checks. There's going to be all sorts of things. And then it's going to be massaged and turned out into one common data model and turned into a repository that anybody can research from going forward. So more real-world data in one particular format. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they come up against as the four different models are coming through in 60 stream. You know, I think about a just a big old ping pong fight, just a bunch of things just coming at you all at once. And how many can you catch? How many can you ward off? It's going to be very interesting, but I have a lot of faith that they've got some very expert people involved and it's a, both a private and public partnership to find out more about this data. Yeah, and I can imagine there's a huge community of clinical researchers who are really hungry for resources like that. So I hope that comes together relatively quickly. All right. Well, Pam Banning, thank you so much for joining us on LabMind Podcast today and educating us a bit on this somewhat esoteric but really important world of semantic interoperability. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Lab Mind podcast, sponsored by ARUP Laboratories. ARUP is a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. You can find more Lab Mind podcasts at arup.utah.edu, or subscribe to Lab Mind using iTunes or your favorite podcast app.